Well, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, please turn in them to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, this morning we'll be reading together verses 5 through 9. So Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. You may recall last week we considered the first four verses of this short epistle that Paul writes to Titus and by extension to the other Christians on the island of Crete. And last week we considered Paul's mission that he gives not only for his own apostleship, but the mission that he gives to the church, the post-apostolic church. And now this morning we see that Paul in verses 5 through 9 uh, speaks about the government that God has given to the church of Jesus Christ. As always, at the conclusion of this reading, we will respond together as the people of God, our confession and belief that God's word is the inspired and inerrant word of our Lord. So please pay careful attention, for this is God's word given to us this morning. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, what comes to mind when you think of the word government? You may be tempted to break the third commandment and grumble and complain about all that you think is wrong with our current political system. But I think we all can acknowledge that civil government is a gift uh, to us from God so that we may live in an ordered society. Well, God has not only given us civil government to govern our common affairs together, as a society, as a community, but God has also given to the church a government. What this means is that the church is not merely a haphazard gathering of Christians. Rather, God has given us principles, principles that come from our foundational and authoritative document, namely the Word of God, and we are called to abide by these principles as we seek to organize ourselves as a community of believers. Now, when we think about these principles regarding church government, founding God's word, these indeed are a gift from our ascended Savior to us in this present age. However, these principles can also um, elicit many negative responses. When you bring up issues such as denominations, liturgical forms, procedures, clerical authority, creeds, confessions, and the like. Uh, these things are, are sort of 
the boogeymen of broad American evangelical culture. Now, why, why, are, why do many Christians today have a negative view of these very formal ecclesiastical things? Well, I think on the one hand, these things can remind people of theological liberalism that's found in Protestant mainline churches. However, I also think the issue goes deeper than that. When you look at the separation of church and, and state that occurred at the founding of this country, uh, this produced two things. On the one hand, it, it gave us religious liberty, which is a very good thing. But the negative aspect of this is that the church inevitably became a product to be consumed in a free market. Now, for the first time, churches had to vie and compete for the same pool of people for their membership. And so reformational confessional churches that emphasized formal education among clergymen, that emphasized procedure, creeds, confessions, a faith that's passed on from generation to generation, these churches were not as appealing as revivalistic churches that shunned formal education and ordination and certifications and emphasized personality, style, and emotion. As a result, then, these revivalistic churches that essentially gave to their people liturgical and doctrinal candy, easy to consume and appealing, but yet left you feeling quite sick on the other hand, on the other, on the other end, uh, these churches grew rapidly in the 18th and 19th centuries. And uh, evangelicalism is really the child, broad kind of evangelicalism of today is the child of 18th and 19th century revivalism. And so as we think hard about church government, as we think hard about these principles that Paul lays down here in Titus, we have to recognize that we are very much going against the stream of the dominant spirit of our American Christian culture. Well, the type of government that Paul speaks of here could be thought of as presbyterial church government. Now, the word elder that Paul uses here in Titus 1 verse 5 is the Greek word that's literally um, presbytos, and so Presbyterial or Presbyterian refers to how the church is to be governed by a plurality of elders. It's to be elder ruled or elder governed. And this form of government that Paul speaks about here in Titus chapter 1 is sort of like a plate of meat and potatoes. It's not going to be as appealing, addicting, as sweet as a piece of chocolate cake, but it's going to nourish you. It's going to leave you full of health and vitality. Now at the end of the day, why should we care about this topic? When I bring up this topic of church government, you may think, well, this is a topic that could put me to sleep at night. Why should we care at all about church government and these principles that Paul speaks about here in this passage? Well, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21, he says to him, that is to say, to God, be glory in the church. And so the reason why God cares about church government and the reason why we should care about church government is because God has chosen the church to be the place where he desires and promises to display his glory. Consequently then, this topic is a very, very important topic because it's a topic that God cares supremely about. And so this morning I'd like us to consider three things. First, we'll uh, consider the titles that Paul uses for this office. Then we'll consider how Paul speaks about elders ruling both locally and broadly. And then last of all, we'll consider 
the character qualifications that Paul gives for this office of elder. Well, you'll notice in, in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul gets right, uh, right to the issue that he wants to speak to Titus about. He tells Titus, who is a minister on the island of Crete, to go to these various towns on this island and appoint elders in these unorganized church plants. Paul seems to suggest here that churches aren't fully churches until there are local elders serving those particular flocks. And so Paul here is commissioning Titus to go and appoint elders in these various unorganized church plants on the island of Crete. Now Paul here in verse 5 uses the term elders, appoint elders. And as I said before, this is the Greek word presbytos. But then Paul goes on to give a list of qualifications that these elders are to meet. And in verse 7, he refers to an overseer. And this word in Greek is episkopos, which is translated from Latin as bishop. Now, as you read these verses here, Paul clearly is using these two titles as a synonym for the same office. Both elder and overseer is refer, are both referring to the same office. Now, historically, there's been really two main forms of church government. Presbyterial or Presbyterian church government, which believes the church is to be governed by a plurality of elders. And then Episcopal church government, which believes that the church is to be governed by a hierarchy of church officials. And those who embrace an Episcopal view of church government would see a distinction between the office of an overseer or a bishop and the office of an elder. And the two main Christian traditions that embrace Episcopal view of church government are Roman Catholics and Anglicans or Episcopalians. Now, as a historical side note, the early church practiced a presbyterial form of church government not only in the pages of the New Testament, but also in the first couple of centuries after the apostles. But then, over the course of a few centuries, the church began to designate particular elders to serve as official administra or administrative officials over regions, broad regions. And the church then designated these particular individuals as overseers or as bishops. And once this became an established practice, the Bishop of Rome started to claim supremacy over the other regional managers, which then developed into the Roman Catholic understanding of the Roman papacy. But again, originally in the early church, the church embraced a, a presbyterial understanding of church government. The church is to be governed by elders, by overseers, and these two um, titles refer to the same office. And next week we'll briefly consider how Paul does make a distinction between uh, those who are chiefly called to rule and those who are chiefly called to teach and administer the sacraments. But these two titles are referring to the same office. Well, we see here specifically in verse 5 that Paul envisions that elders have responsibilities both in their local church and in the broader church. So elders are called to rule both locally and broadly. So again, consider what Paul is saying here in verse 5. Paul is telling Titus, who is himself a minister, to appoint elders in these various church plants in these cities on the island of Crete. Now, Paul is not telling Titus, now go to these various church plants and encourage them in the Lord. 
that probably would be helpful. But Paul is telling Titus to exercise and discharge duties that are uh, enjoined to his office as a minister. Titus is to exercise authority over these church plants and do something very formal, appoint elders in these church plants. So Titus very much had responsibilities to the broader church beyond just a particular local congregation. Now, we see in Acts chapter 6 that uh, there were some widows who were being neglected on the daily distributions, and so the apostles recognized that this should not be, and so they told the disciples, the broader church, to select seven men to serve as deacons, to serve the bodily needs of the congregation, the church. And the disciples, the church, selected these seven men. And then we read that the apostles prayed and laid their hands on these seven, seven men as part of their ordination. Acts chapter 6 seems to suggest that the congregation is involved in the selection and calling process of office bearers. So Paul here is likely only alluding to the final part of this selection and calling process of new office bearers. I think we can assume that he also was, was um, getting the advice of the congregation of these various unorganized church plants as he was appointing elders in these various cities. Now, here in, in Titus 1.5, as we see Titus exercising authority over many different congregations, is this an anomaly? Again, is this something that's just unique to the first century? Or do we see evidences of this principle at work elsewhere in the New Testament? Well, in Acts chapter 15, we see that there is a, ch- a problem that's plaguing the churches in Antioch. There are some Jewish Christians who are, requ- who are requiring that Gentiles be circumcised in order to be true Christians. And so what the church does is they call a council to take place in Jerusalem. And elders from many different regions gather in Jerusalem along with the apostles and they deliberate this issue that's plaguing the church in Antioch. They draft a letter and they then disperse and send this letter off to the churches. And so Acts 15 seems to also suggest that elders have responsibilities not only to their local church but also to the broader church. And this principle that we see at work in the apostolic church likely was at work because the first century church was seeking to be faithful to what Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17. Now in John 17, Jesus prays as he's about to go to the cross. He prays that his disciples and by extension all Christians would be one as he and his father are one. He's praying for unity, deep unity. In one sense, a formal unity among the Christian church. And the way in which we pursue this formal unity as individuals with other individual Christians is through the avenue of church membership. But how do local churches pursue formal unity with other local churches? Well, by being part of a denomination or federation of churches. Being a part of a denomination is not, first of all, divisive, but rather it's an expression of unity. We are formally joining arms with other churches as we seek to um, be faithful to the principles that God has given us in his word. And this is why, in part, we are a 
a member church, a church plant within a federation of churches, a URCNA. And within our federation of churches, uh, two representatives, two ministers or elders from each local church in a particular region gather twice a year uh, to deliberate over various churchly matters. And at these meetings, uh, the broader church will examine new candidates for ministry. They'll take part in the appointing of new ministers, similar to what Titus is doing here in chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, the broader church will give advice and wisdom to churches in need of counsel. And then at least once every three years, two representatives from each local church will gather for what is called a synod. And this is a representation of, of every church within our federation of churches. And so the reason why we do these things is because we recognize this foundational principle that's laid down not only here in Titus 1 verse 5, but also in Acts 15 and John 17. Now what's the wisdom behind this principle that we see revealed here in, in Titus 1 verse 5? Well, uh, this, this principle helps ensure that ministers and elders are faithfully discharging the responsibilities and joined to their office. Another practice that we maintain in the URC is every particularized and organized church is required to invite two experienced office bearers within their regional church to visit uh, their council. A council is the elders, deacons, and ministers of a particular church. And these church vis visitors are to uh, basically ask the church whether or not they're being faithful to the church order. So they'll ask various diagnostic questions to ensure that that particular church is being faithful to their commitment to uphold our church order, our confessions. But this principle is also wise because it helps to protect individual Christians, individual sheep. So in the case in which an individual Christian feels wronged by their local elders, there are avenues of appeal to pursue to the broader church. And so in the case in which those local elders are wrong, there is accountability for those local elders um, through the broader church. And so there is a lot of wisdom to this presbyterial form of church government in which elders have responsibilities not only to their local congregation, but also to the broader church. Well, Paul here not only speaks about this principle, but then he gets more specific. You'll notice that much of these verses is about the qualifications for elders or overseers. Paul is giving to Titus a list that he is to um, use as he seeks to appoint new elders in these various church plants on the island of Crete. Now, as you read these, these lists of qualifications, you'll notice that the, the emphasis is on character. The emphasis is on character. In fact, Paul twice refers to this character trait of being above reproach. Uh, he, he alludes to this character trait twice in verse 6 and in verse 7. This character tra uh, trait serves in one sense as sort of an umbrella trait. <clears throat> it's an all-encompassing, summarizing trait. And so we can think of the character qualities that Paul lists here as falling under one of two headings. Elders are to be above reproach in their home life, and elders are to be above reproach in their personal conduct. So first we see that uh, Paul is saying that elders are to be above reproach in their home life. Paul says that elders 
must be the husband of one wife. Literally, he's saying that these elders must be a a one-woman man. Now, this isn't necessarily saying that those who are single or those who have experienced a divorce on legitimate grounds are automatically disqualified for the office of an elder. Rather, I think Paul is saying that um, in most cases, potential elders will be married, but this isn't a, a necessarily a requirement to be an elder. Rather, the deeper sense behind this qualification is that for those who are married, they need to pursue sexual fidelity, and for those who are single, they need to pursue sexual purity. That's the deeper principle uh, behind this qualification. Well, Paul goes on to speak not only about an elder's relationship to his wife, but also about an elder's relationship to his children. So you'll see that Paul continues and says, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of uh, debauchery or insubordination. Now, if you're reading from the ESV, you will see that there's a footnote um, attached to this word believers. And the footnote should say that this word could also be rendered faithful. Faithful in the sense of obedient or submissive. Now, the Greek word that's being used here is uh, the word for faith, and sometimes it's used to refer to personal faith, and sometimes it's referred to, uh, uh, it's, refer, uh, it's used to refer to uh, faithfulness, obedience, or submissiveness. And the translators here had to make a decision. Which, which uh, rendering are we going to go with here? And I agree with many scholars that the footnote rendering is actually the correct rendering of this word, meaning that this should be translated, and his children are faithful or submissive, or obedient, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, why? Why do I think that this this, um, understanding is compelling? Well, first, notice that Paul goes on to explain in his very next word what he, in his very next words, what he means by this term. So Paul goes on to say, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Paul here is describing the opposite of submissiveness, not personal faith. And so Paul likely here is saying that potential elders who have children within their household, under their authority, need to be, generally speaking, submissive and obedient and not open to blatant charges of debauchery and insubordination. Second, uh, we read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4-5, through 5, which is, Uh, another passage in which Paul gives various qualifications for potential elders. Paul says this. He says that the potential elder must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So there Paul is saying that the natural family serves as a microcosm for the household of faith. And here Paul is saying that an elder must keep his children submissive. He's not speaking to the personal faith of that elder's children, but rather the obedience or submissiveness of those children. And thus the footnote rendering in Titus 1 would seem to best cohere with what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And last of all, 
whenever you are, think about a position of leadership, you can only control yourself. You ultimately don't have control over other people. And we know that we do not have ultimate authority over anybody else's souls. That is up to God and the work of his regenerating Holy Spirit. And there are many examples of, of godly, faithful parents who have kids who grow up and do not profess the faith of no fault of their own. It's a heartbreaking matter. And so it would seem... Well, and, and furthermore, there are many examples of these same children decades after or decades later responding to their baptism, responding to the catechesis that they received in the home and in the church when they were growing up and, and professing their faith, which is a wonderful thing. And so it would seem odd if Paul is penalizing a man for something that's ultimately out of his control. And furthermore, I think if Paul was speaking to personal faith, it, it would lead to... Um, uh, in some sense, a troubling precedent of, of wanting to peer into the souls of other people, something that the rest of Scripture does not call us to do, but rather to content ourselves with what, what has been revealed and what we can control. And therefore, I think that the, the footnote rendering is actually the, the better rendering of, of this word, that elders are to keep their children submissive or obedient. Now, the reason why Paul cares so much about an elder's conduct in the home is because the home is a microcosm of the church. The home is a microcosm of the church. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul analogizes the natural family household with the household of faith. And so Paul is saying that if you neglect the household, then that's a probably a pretty good indication that you're going to be negligent in your duties within the church. If you're absent in the home, you probably will be absent in the church. If you fail to care for your family, you probably will fail to care for the flock of God which has been entrusted to you. And so the natural family serves as a microcosm for the household of faith. Well, you'll notice that Paul goes on here in these verses to again repeat this call for elders to be above reproach. And the rest of this passage speaks to how elders are to be above reproach in terms of their personal conduct. And so Paul defines what it means to be above reproach by listing five vices. He says in verse 7 that he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. And then positively, he lists six virtues when he says, but a hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now, of course, these vices and virtues are pretty self-explanatory. But Paul is, again, uh, laboring this point that an elder is to be above reproach in terms of their personal conduct. Now, as you consider these qualifications in terms of an elder's character, uh, an elder's character there is no doubt a subjective element to these qualifications. All of these elements, all these characteristics are grounded in God's moral law. And if God were to judge us according to his strict justice, there is no pastor, no elder who has ever served in these offices who ever has met these qualifications. We all fail miserably to steer clear of these vices and to embody these virtues. So we have to recognize that. And so Paul here is speaking about characteristic or habitual practices in the lives of these elders, which means that there is going to be a subjective element to this standard. <laughs> and thus, the church needs to be on guard against showing partiality as they go through the selection process of, of new office bearers, because it's very easy to have different standards that you apply to different people. And so we are to guard against partiality. Now, this list is not merely given to Titus. 
Rather, it's given to the entire church at large, to all the Christians. You'll notice that the last verse in Titus, Paul says, grace be with you all, in the plural. This letter is written not just to Titus to read in the privacy of his own closet, but it's written to all of the Christians to benefit from. And so why does Paul want all Christians to know about these qualifications? Well, on the one hand, so that they can be cognizant of of what character traits they are to look for in potential new office bearers as they take part in the nomination process, but also because this standard that Paul gives us is something that every Christian is to seek to emulate. Peter says that shepherds, Elders are given to the people as an example to the flock. And thus, these qualifications, these character qualifications, are things that we all are called to grow up into. Now, in verse 7, Paul, uh, as he speaks about what it means to be an overseer, he refers to elders as stewards. Now, in the ancient world, masters would oftentimes employ individuals to govern uh, his estate or business. And so, In a similar way, God has employed elders to be stewards of the household of faith, his household within the church. And thus, elders are stewards and not masters. It's a very important point to recognize. There's only been one individual, Jesus Christ, who is the master of the church, the king of the church, the lord of the church. There's only been one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's perfectly embodied these character qualities, who's avoided the vices and embodied the virtues. And Christ lived this perfect life for us for two chief reasons. On the one hand, that we might have a benevolent shepherd and overseer of our souls, one who can sympathize with our weaknesses and temptations, and so that we might have an alien righteousness credited and imputed to us so that we might be uh, made members of the household of faith. The reason why we can be called members of the family of God is not because we can somehow approximate these character qualities, but rather because Christ or God imputes to us Christ's perfect and alien righteousness so that we can be included as members of his household. And we have to recognize that the visible church is a marred institution made up of sinners. And What keeps us from turning our back on this visible institution when we get a glimpse of its underbelly is by remembering the master of this household, remembering the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ promises that he will comfort the afflicted, he will assure the weak of heart with his word and his sacraments, which are objectively true no matter the piety of the particular stewards ruling in his household. And so next week, we're going to finish our consideration of these qualifications by spending some time on this last qualification that has to do with the competency of elders, that they are called to give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict them.